0: Hi, welcome to Tashma, a new podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killup, and I am really excited to be hosting this new podcast. Tashma is the Talmud's way of saying, come and listen, and we hope you will. This is our second episode of Tashma. We are listening to a three part series of talks from the spring of 2021 from Hadar faculty member Rabbi Tali Adler on the topic of Torah of Reopening. If you haven't yet heard part one, feel free to stop here and go back to the first episode. And for those of you who did listen, we are ready for part two. In this episode, Rav Tali delves into the experience of the messy emotions of reuniting with loved ones after the pandemic. Times of extended separation can change the nature of a relationship, and Tali offers tools to navigate those changes. Tali makes space in this talk for some of the more difficult emotions. I personally have already started to have some of these long awaited reunions myself, and yes, they are just as complicated as we imagined. I hope listening to this Torah will help you each find your way through this hard and wonderful time.
1: Hi, everyone. I am joining you all from our quote unquote third bedroom/slash office space in Washington Heights. What we're going to be doing today is touching on what I think is one of actually the most anticipated and for many people complicated parts of the reopening from COVID, and that is reunions with loved ones. And I want to say a little word about that before we jump in. On the surface, the way that it's being portrayed in popular culture right now and i really mean in popular culture there are tv shows that are covering this theme there are some excellent commercials that have tapped into it those moments of reunion feel like they should be uncomplicated they feel like they should just be moments of joy of i'm seeing you after so long and all that i am experiencing in this moment is joy and gratitude for that reunion but i think that anyone who's ever been reunited with a loved one after a long period of absence knows that the reality is more complicated. What you've endured during the time of separation is something that changes you and sometimes changes the loved one and can change the nature of your relationship. And what we're going to be doing tonight is looking at that moment of reunion In all its complication, in all of its messiness, what would it mean to look at it through a Torah perspective? What tools do Torah, do Halacha give us to grapple with what it means to reunite with a loved one after a long period of separation? And how can we use those tools in order to embrace and I would say even sanctify our moments of reunions with our loved ones after? for many of us, incredibly long separations during COVID. We're going to be starting today with what is perhaps the most famous moment of reunion in Tanakh, in the Torah. And that's the reunion of Yosef and Yaakov, of Joseph and Jacob, after their 22 year separation. To remind us, Joseph is sold into Egypt by his brothers. His father assumes that he is dead. His father finds out through the whole process of his brothers going to Egypt, looking for food, etc., that Joseph is actually alive and goes to Egypt to meet him. And we're going to dive in with those verses. Joseph ordered his chariot and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. He presented himself to him and embracing him around the neck, he wept on his neck a good while. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now I can die, having seen for myself that you are still alive. It's one of my favorite scenes in Tanakh. And for those of you who enjoy the Broadway play version of this, which I think they are reviving, it's one of the most excellent scenes in that play as well. What I want us to focus on in this moment is. There's actually, if you look in the Hebrew, ambiguity here of who is doing what. Let's look at the Hebrew. Vayar He presented himself to him. Who is the he here? Who is presenting himself to who? Vaypal al And he fell on his neck. Who was doing the falling? Vayevch al tzabarav, Od. And he wept on his neck and here the translation is a good while some people translate it as increasingly much there's there's an incredible lengthy period of weeping here but the text is ambiguous who is doing the crying who is doing the falling who is doing the presenting we have two men here who is doing what in this moment of reunion and the commentaries take different tracks on this. Some of them insist that actually they are both doing everything. How could they not be? How could a father and son not both be crying in this moment? How could a father and son not both be falling on each other in this moment? Of course, it must be mutual. But Rashi, who we're going to look at now, actually takes a very different track and says the he is only one person, and that is Joseph, that is Yosef. Let's scroll down and take a look at Rashi. And wept on his neck a good while. Here also he wept greatly and continuously, more than as usual. For Rashi, this is talking only about Yosef. It is Yosef who is crying more than as usual, although what usual would be after not seeing your father for 22 years, I, I can't tell you. Jacob, however, did not fall upon Joseph's neck. Yaakov didn't do any of that. Yaakov is not falling. Yaakov is not crying, nor did he kiss him. Our rabbis say the reason was that he was reciting the Shema. I'm curious about people's initial emotional reactions to Rashi's insistence that Yaakov doesn't cry in this moment, doesn't fall upon Joseph's neck, doesn't kiss him, What I want us to focus on in this moment, though, is Rashi in this moment opens up a possibility of multiple scripts in a moment of reunion. There's the standard script. And by what I mean by standard is not in any way cliched. I don't think such a moment laden with such deep, real emotion can become cliched. But the script that we would expect, and that's the script that Yosef follows, of course he is going to embrace his father. Of course he is going to fall upon him and cry. Of course he is going to kiss him. And that is not necessarily how everyone would react and that is not, Farashi, how Yaakov reacts. He insists here that there are actually two markedly different reactions and he insists that that actually, well, I'll take a step back, He does it without passing judgment. And I think what Rashi might be doing here is actually opening up the possibility that Yaakov is experiencing this moment just as viscerally perhaps, but not through tears and rather through a moment of ritual, through the Shema. And to understand that, we have to understand how various super commentaries on Rashi have understood this moment. Some of them do see this moment as being highly ritualistic. And I mean that not in a dismissive way. I saw a chat here from someone, I think Vincent, who said, reminds me of the anecdote from Halachic Man about delaying a deathbed visit in order to put on tefillin. Since once you get to the deathbed, you're exempt from the mitzvah. I think that Vincent is interpreting it exactly in the way that many of Rashi's super commentaries do. This is a, an important moment of ritual and it is time, according to those super commentaries, for Yaakov to say Shema. The time of Shema is soon going to pass and even at this moment of total emotion, of awaited reuni- of, of, for reunion, Yaakov can't let that go. That's one interpretation. Another reading of Rashi, though, I think, is that actually, this is not Yaakov ignoring the moment for a ritual. This is not Yaakov ignoring the moment in favor of fulfilling his mitzvah obligation of saying the Shema. But rather, Yaakov is actually celebrating, processing, expressing this moment through religious expression. Let's take a look back at the pasuk just to remind ourselves what is Yaakov referred to as in these pasukim. Yaakov is referred to by the name Yisrael. And if we take that seriously, then what Rashi is painting Yaakov as doing in this moment might actually be calling out to himself. Listen Yisrael, listen Yisrael, listen myself, my soul, God is one. This moment of reunion for Yaakov, I think, testifies to him about God's faithfulness, about God's oneness. And for Yaakov, that moment of reunion is deeply religious as well as deeply personal. The two are inextricable for him. Far from painting Yaakov as emotionally detached, Rashi's actually painting him as Perhaps reciting, but perhaps actually innovating at this moment, the single most central article of Jewish faith, motivated by how much the reunion with his son actually matters to him. And I want us to take that seriously throughout this, throughout the next hour together. What would it be if we imagine that actually the Shema itself is innovated, is born out of a moment of reunion? What if our moments of reunion are not just personal moments, but actually the most deeply meaningful religious moments that we have? What if in some way they are miraculous and the sort of miracles that can actually tune us in in some way to God's presence in a way that most of our daily life cannot? Now, we don't have any, at least I have never seen, Any mention of there being any ritual of saying the Shema upon reuniting with friends or upon reuniting with loved ones? If anyone's ever heard of that actually being practiced, please let me know. I would love to hear about it. But what we do have is a bracha that the rabbis actually created for moments of reunion with loved ones, or perhaps a, to say it better, a a bracha that we have, a blessing that we have, that they apply specifically to moments of reunion. And exactly as Joe Gardenberg said, we say, <laughs> the blessing that we recite, praising God for reviving the dead. A word about that bracha before we dive into the sources about it. The bracha has fallen out of use at least over the past 200 years. We have sources from approximately 200 years ago questioning why does no one say this bracha anymore. And what I'm going to be doing tonight is not making a halachic argument for reviving the use of the bracha. Saying a bracha, the normative use of whether a bracha is recited or not, using God's name is a very serious issue, and it's not what we're going to be touching on tonight. Instead, we're going to be diving into how does this bracha, how can this bracha and the commentaries around this bracha help us conceptualize our moments of reunion with our loved ones, and what can they actually tell us about ourselves, about what we might be experiencing in those moments. Let's dive in this is from brachot 58b the sages taught in a one who sees graves of israel recites blessed be you lord our god who formed you in judgment and who nourished you in judgment and who sustained you in judgment and collected your soul in judgment and in the future will raise you from the dead in judgment Myr son of ravina concluded the formula of this blessing in the name of Rav nachman and who knows the number of you all, and who in the future will restore you to life and sustain you. Blessed be you, Lord or God, who revives the dead." The original jumping off point for this bracha in the Gemara is actually the bracha that you say when you see graves. It is actually a concrete hope for one day in the future, one day there can be life again. And then the Gemara does something very different. Rabbi Yosho Ben Levi said, one who sees his friend after 30 days have passed since last seeing him recites, blessed be you, Lord our God, who has given us life, sustained us and brought us to this time. We say this bracha relatively often. We say it at holidays. We say it if we're eating. Um, a new fruit for the first time that season. We say it when we see certain incredible sights that we haven't seen in at least a month. And Rabbi Yeshua Ben-Levi puts seeing a friend you haven't seen in a month among those special, but not necessarily miraculous times. You thank God for sustaining you until that moment. It is a special moment that you are grateful to be there for. One who sees his friend after 12 months, however, recites, blessed be you, Lord our God, who revives the dead." mechaye hamitim. And here we've jumped into something quite different. Here we've jumped from something that we are grateful for, some, a moment in which we acknowledge God, to a moment that we actually recontextualize as not something nice but ordinary, but is something in and of itself miraculous. Blessed be you, God, who revives the dead. In some ways, this is as special, as miraculous, as life-giving, as the actual dream of God reviving the dead at the end of days. As Rav said, a dead person is only forgotten from the heart after 12 months have elapsed. As it is stated, I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a lost vessel. Let's take a moment to look at Rav's explanation. A dead person is only forgotten from the heart after 12 months have elapsed. Why 12 months without seeing your friend? Why upon that is that the moment that you recite who arrives the dead? Because when you've been separated, when you've lost someone, when someone has died, after 12 months, they begin in some ways, according to this Gemara, and I know that this isn't true to life for many people. But according to the after 12 months, they begin to fade for you. And Rav is comparing this. Rav is saying, I think that in some way, when you've been separated from a friend for 12 months, they, like that person who you've lost, actually begin to fade for you. And in that moment of reunion, they actually have been revived for you. They've been brought back. There's been something about either this person, this friendship, this relationship that has started to deteriorate, perhaps past the point of what you would have thought is recoverable. And in this moment, this moment of reunion, we're actually experiencing the miraculous. I want to touch on what Elizabeth Legat said so different in 2021 when we've seen quote unquote each other electronically. That actually touches on one and Vincent is also touching on some key points here. Vincent says, much more easy to imagine in a world without long distance communication and in which very few people traveled from home at any point in their lives. Great, you have just touched on one of the major theories about why this bracha fell out of use at some point. What did it used to mean when you hadn't seen someone in 12 months? It used to mean that for all you knew, they might as well have been dead. There is no reliable mail. There is no reliable knowing that a tourist is gonna land in your place, you'll have them over for Shabbat, you'll ask about that friend. There certainly is no, I'm opening my Facebook feed and I see what they're up to. Much less any seeing them face-to-face over Zoom. And according to some, that is why we don't say this bracha anymore because we actually cannot access this experience. I want us to bracket that for tonight. And I want us to dive into yes, we have in many ways seen each other face to face over Zoom over the past 12 months. And yet, the moment of reunion is still anticipated. And why is that? What is it that we lost over that time apart? What is it that we are hoping to revive in being together? If anyone wants to follow up on specifically the question of, through a halachic lens, of being together, not being together, should you say this bracha, should you not say this bracha, Rav Rimon of Alon Shvot wrote an, a halachic piece on what bracha you should say when reuniting with a loved one after Corona. For now, let's continue with this bracha, look at different commentaries on it. And over the next half hour or so, we're going to see how three different commentaries answer the following question. One, who is being revived here? Meaning there's some, if we had ambiguity at the beginning, there's ambiguity a little bit here as well. Is it the friend who has been revived? Is it the friendship that has been revived? Is there something in between those two? What are you thanking God for? What is the celebration in this moment? And how does that change how we understand this moment of reunion? Let's dive into Rashi. And a vessel that has been lost for more than 12 months is forgotten by its owners because they despair of finding it after 12 months. is interested here in why 12 months? What is special about that amount of time? Rav says that it's because the dead are forgotten after 12 months. Rashi is going to take that, but look specifically at the proof text. Why does the proof text say, I am like a lost vessel? What does that have to do with 12 months? What is it about a lost vessel forgetting 12 months? And he answers that we have laws relating to lost objects. And those laws assume that Someone who has lost an object despairs of finding it after 12 months, such that there are implications for someone who has found the object, whether they have to announce it, whether to what extent they have to go to try to find the owner. And for Rashi here, the friend is actually the object, the vessel that has been lost, the vessel that you despaired of finding. And let's take a moment to think about what this means for us in light of COVID, in light of the last 12 months, in light of what we are hoping to experience when we're together again. Like we said, so many of us had the privilege of seeing each other over Zoom, seeing each other face-to-face, even if we're not in the same room together, and that's a loss. But part of what we were experiencing during that, I think for many of us, when it felt like like the world was ending, when it felt like we didn't know how many more months this would be, when it felt like we didn't know if the world would ever be exactly the same again, part of what we experienced, I think, was actually the technical term that Rashi uses for someone whose object has been lost for more than 12 months, yayush, despair yeahish despair a sort of letting go a sort of letting go of the real belief that we will ever truly be together again and I don't mean for most of us although we'll touch on this in a moment when that's actually when that's actually live I don't think for most of us that we thought that with our rational minds I think most of us with our rational minds knew that this was going to be finite that things would, open up again, and yet, for how many of us did we go through nights, did we go through holidays, where we felt like, there's only despair here, I don't actually fully believe that we will ever be together again, it has been just too long, and Rashi's tapping into that, why do we say mechaye when we're together again? Because, on some level, you have in some way given up. The human spirit cannot actually fully believe for more than 12 months that you will be together again. There will have been moments of despair. And when you are together again, when you thank God for reviving the dead, it is because, in some ways, you are being revived from that despair. You are seeing someone being with someone again who you never believed in some way that you would fully be with. Just as we even for those who believe fully in the revival of the dead, on some level, don't necessarily always feel like we will be together with our loved ones again. Let's take a look now at the Khidushe Agadot. This is the Maharsha in his commentary on after 12 months. I saw that some people commented in the chat that the importance of 12 months is that you go through a full cycle apart, a full cycle of holidays. And but that actually is, in some ways, what makes it so difficult. You've lived through an entire year apart. And the Marsha here, the Chizu taps into that, but sees it specifically as being centered around Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and what that means. Chizu Because every year, each person is judged on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as to whether they will live or die. And if one sees their friend after this Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and then do not see them again until after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the friend has passed through the judgment of whether they will live or die. Therefore, one blesses, blessed be the one who revives the dead, because their friend was saved from the sentence of death on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The Chidosh is channeling here that long separation brings with it danger. We pass through these times where, for the Kiddush HaGadot, we are very concretely judged. Every year, we have a period of time that we pass through in which it's really not clear that we will make it to the next year, where God has to actively make that decision. And when we pass through that year, we have in some way been revived. And for someone who is seeing a loved one after passing through that period, they are actually thanking God for, in some way, reviving their friend, allowing them to live another year, allowing them to continue, allowing them to pass through this moment that might have otherwise been deadly. And this, I think, is a more concrete version of what Rashi laid out in the last source if for Rashi it's subjective it's about your despair about whether you will ever see that person again not because there's a concrete danger but because human beings naturally at a certain point start to give up for the agadot, the danger is live and concrete and tied specifically to the passage of time and this was a different aspect of COVID I think for many of us There was something about this year, and I think this is why for so many of us, even when we saw people face-to-face over Zoom, we had some fear of, for many of us, will I ever actually get to stand in the same room as this person again? How can I ever be sure of that in the pandemic? The pandemic brought to life in terrible ways what it actually means to go through a chaotic world. Every time you are separated from someone in a chaotic world, there's the danger of, will that be the last time? And obviously there are some people for whom that's more alive than others. People who were separated from family members who they knew were sick. People who were separated from grandparents, great grandparents, knowing that being separated was the safest thing possible for their grandparents or great-grandparents, and also knowing that that carried a terrible danger because time was limited. And the Chidosh HaGadot here is taking that reality that so so many of us experienced during COVID and saying, you don't understand. That's actually the reality every time. Every time you are saying goodbye for an extended period of time, that is the possibility. And when you come together again, that is a miracle. God has actually given you back something. God has actually, in this moment, as far as you are concerned, revived the dead. I wanna read this comment from Barbara and Howard who point out that Jacob fully believed that Joseph was dead, he went through two reunions. That's absolutely, absolutely true. And we're going to get back to that in a little about what does it actually look like when the, when that is entirely serious, you actually fully believed that this person, this relationship was gone. What are the possibilities there and what potentially is still lost? Mara Benjamin, couldn't the person reciting the blessing be referring to herself? There's a piece of us revived when we see someone we love and have been separated from. We're looking now at a work called the Likutei Halachot. The Likutei Halachot is a work of breath of thought that centers around halakha, but actually is a work of what I'll call Machshava, Jewish thought, um, and of Chassidut. And he takes exactly the track that Mara Benjamin put in the chat. Let's read this together for a moment. Likutei halachot, or achaim, laws of blessing on Sights and other blessings, chapter one. Because the central part of aliveness, that's the best translation I have of chiyut, which is a, actually a technical term for the likutei halachot, but we won't get into that now. Because the central part of aliveness comes through the love between friends, through which they give light to one another because the central part of aliveness is love and peace. There is an aspect of being alive, and I would say more specifically alive as a human being that is tied to friendship, to being with friends, to being with loved ones. They actually bring out and make alive a part of ourselves that we lose otherwise. And this is why one who sees her friend after 12 months blesses who revives the dead, specifically when encountering a friend who she rejoices in seeing. Because friends who love each other are certainly close and adjacent in their roots. And so they need each other to give light to one another. And when one sees the other, they are inspired such that it is like the revival of the dead. And so they bless who revives the dead when they see one another. This flips the script here. We're suddenly in very different territory. It is not that I was afraid of losing you. It is not that I despaired in some way of ever being with you again, or maybe it's also those things, but it's also that over 12 months apart of not being together with this specific friend, I lost part of myself. And, I want us all to think for a moment about who is someone in my life who brings out, who brings alive a certain part of me that only comes alive when I'm in their presence. For some of us, this is our spouse. For some of us, this is specifically family. But the likut tehalachot, I think, here is making an incredible move and insisting that that can simply be a friend. And the word simply is wrong here because there is no simply a friend when you believe that this is what friendship does, when you believe that friendship, true friendship, is someone who can bring out something in you, bring alive something in you that no one else can. And I want to pause for a moment because the the implications of this, for those of us who have been apart from loved ones over the past year, are actually that we've lost parts of ourselves. What has been so painful about the separation over the year? Yes, there's been the missing the other person, but there's also been the missing who we used to be in their company. There's been the longing for a part of yourself, a part of your soul that only that other person can bring alive. And what are we thanking God for in the moment of reunion? When we say, blessed are you, God who revives the dead? Blessed are you, God who revives my soul. Blessed are you, God, who actually brought this part of me back to life after being separated for so long, because that's what friendship is supposed to do. I want to pause for a moment. Alana Axel just touched on the group experience and vitality in the group, and I think we'll actually go there in a moment. The blessing who revives the dead when friends come back together is in some ways still very hopeful. It's in some ways a prayer of hope that even though it has been 12 months or more for Yaakov, even though it's been 22 years, the hope, the prayer that what felt frayed, what felt like it had gone dormant, what felt like in some ways had died inside of us can be revived. And we know that that's not always the case. Dr. Erica Brown wrote an article in, I think it was First Things, actually, about what it means to revive friendships after COVID. And she says, quite frankly, that there are friendships that will die. There are friendships that actually we didn't do enough to keep alive over COVID. Or there are friendships where just too much happened in the in-between time. And she doesn't believe that those can ever come back. And she's sometimes right. I want to go back to Yaakov and Yosef for a moment. There is a debate about what happens to Yaakov and Yosef's relationship after they're reunited. I think in many of our imaginations, things go back to normal or possibly a more beautiful version of normal. Maybe Yaakov moves into Yosef's guest bedroom, whatever that is, in the in the Egyptian palace. Maybe they spend all their time pouring out their souls about the things that happened in between. But there's another school of thought that actually too much has happened between them in the time that they were apart. There are too many secrets there. And actually Yosef spends the rest of his life avoiding Yaakov because he's afraid of what will come out. And the people who say that actually argue that Yosef does that to protect his brothers. Yaakov doesn't actually know how Yosef ended up in Egypt. Yaakov doesn't actually know that the brothers sold Yosef. And Yosef, in an attempt to keep that secret buried, actually gives up on that relationship. And what I want to do in our last 10 or so minutes together is take a look at a source that I think gives us a perspective on what might it actually take For us to revive these relationships, what might it actually take not only to revive these relationships, but to allow them to do their work, to allow our friends to bring us back to life, to allow our friends to see everything that they've missed in the past year, to allow our friends to really experience what it has been to be apart for the last year with all the complications that that came with. It hasn't been 22 years, but for many of us, the last year felt like 22 years. There were things that we experienced in the last year that we never expected to experience in all our lives. And we are coming back to relationship here. We are coming back to reunion here with those burdens. What might it look like? What might it take to make those relationships possible again, those reunions possible again? And for that, we'll take a look actually at a moment that centers back with Rashi's comment on the lost objects. Let's dive in. We're in the last source. This is from Masahat Smechot, a minor tractate that actually centers mostly around mourning loss. On the first and second day of mourning, he may not enter the Temple Mount. This is about someone who is an active mourner, and it's some sort of a holiday, some sort of a chag, can he go into the temple? And if he does, what does that look like? On the first and second day of mourning, he may not enter the temple now. On the third day, he may enter, but must go around to the left. Most people in the mikdash are moving around to the right. There's a flow of traffic, so to speak. And this person who is mourning is instructed to go against traffic, to go to the left, while everyone else is walking to the right. They are actually going to run into this mourner who is walking to the left. But it's not only mourners who do it. These are those who must go around to the left. A mourner, an excommunicated person, one who is a sick person in his house, and one who lost an object. Many of us are none of these literally, and so many of us, after a year of a pandemic, are all of these things. In a year when there has been so much loss of life, in some ways, we are all mourners. In a year that has centered around being isolated, being apart, so many of us are in some ways excommunicated. I think very few of us are coming out of this year without a sick person in their house. And I think that all of us in the past year have lost something. When asked, why do you go around to the left? He answers, because I'm a mourner. They reply, may he who dwells in this house comfort you. What does it look like to rejoin society? What does it look like to experience reunion after a year of being apart? I think part of the answer is here. It involves coming in noticeably as different than you were before. It involves coming in, walking to the left. It involves the responsibility of everyone, I think, to both be someone who walks to the left and also someone who walks to the right. In the moments when we are walking to the left, those are the moments where we say, this is what I lost. Those are the moments where we say, I am a mourner. I am excommunicated. I have a sick person. I have lost something. And in the moments where we are walking to the right, those are the moments where we meet others and say, what happened? What happened to you this past year? What happened that you are walking to the left? And I think we're called on In this passage, to be both. And not only are we called on to ask the question, we're called on to give the reply, may he who dwells in this house comfort you. It is not only you and me together in this moment, it is actually three. The same move that Yaakov made when he reunited with Yosef and said the Shema, the same move that the rabbis instruct us to make when we reunite with a friend and And mark that moment with the bracha. The person walking to the right makes in this moment by saying, May he who dwells in this house comfort you. We are bound in relationship. We are comforting each other. We are bringing each other back in some way to community through the help, through the help of God. Let's continue. If he says, Because I'm under a ban, they reply, May he who dwells in this house put it into their heart to draw you near. So said Rabbi Meir. I love that passage. I particularly love that it's said by Rabbi Meir, the student of a rabbi who is very famously um, cast aside. Rabbi Yossi said to him, you make out as if those who band pass their own judgment on him. But what they say is, may he who dwells in this house put it in your heart to hearken to the words of your colleagues so that they may draw you near. To one who is a sick person in his house, they say, may he who dwells in this house have mercy upon him. And if he is barely living, they say, may he have mercy upon him immediately. It is related of a certain woman whose daughter was ill that she ascended the Temple Mount and went round it and did not move from there until they came and told her she is cured. To one who lost some object, and here we come back to the beginning again, we come back to Rashi. Why do we say after 12 months? Owners despair of finding their lost objects after 12 months. To one who lost some object, they say, May he who dwells in this house put it into the heart of the finder to return it to you as once. It is related of Rabia Lazar ben, ben Hanania Ben Chizkia, Ben Goryon, that he lost a scroll of the Torah, which he had bought for a hundred minas. He ascended the temple mount, went around it, and did not move from there until they came and told him, the scroll of the Torah has been found. Here's where I want to leave us tonight. The reason we say my team, when we encounter someone who we thought we might never see again, someone who we've been apart from 12, for 12 months or more, are manifold. There is something about, I despaired of finding you. There is something about, I am grateful that you lived to this moment. There is something about, part of me is coming back to life in this moment. But that is only actually true if we do the work of sharing with each other what was lost. Sharing with each other, this is what I endured in the time that we were apart. This is what I went through. Can you help me find what I lost? And I believe that if that's work that we do, if those are words that we say, if we can be brave enough actually to walk to the left and trust that there will be people, that the ones that we love will find us walking to the right, then we can actually experience in some way what the bracha really means. Then in some way we can actually experience the miraculous revival of the dead. This is where we're going to close out for tonight, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm looking forward to learning with you again next week for the conclusion of this
0: series. Be well, everyone. Thank you. Bye. This was the second lecture in a three-part series. So we've got one more and I hope you will listen. I, I promise you don't want to miss it. This episode of Tashma was produced by Rabbi Effie Unterman with help from Rebecca Kersner and edited by Evan Feist. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It has been a pleasure to learn with you.